Hello, and welcome to Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm your host, Pacifico Soldati. The show explores topics from law and business to consciousness, spirituality, and everything in between. We feature accomplished leaders across many fields to help you get more out of your life. You can learn more and stay up to date at theluepodcast.com. If you're not familiar with my background, I'm a helper, parent, marketer, attorney outlaw, certified mediator, story brand guide, omnist, yoga teacher, and a former paratrooper and award-winning army chef at the 82nd Airborne Division and U.S. Army Special Operations Command. I'm the founder and CEO of the Soldati Group, a marketing agency helping startups, small businesses, and law firms leverage the power of story to grow their businesses. Law, the Universe, and Everything is a production of the Soldati Group. All opinions expressed by the hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of the Soldati Group or guest employers. This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only, and these discussions do not constitute legal or investment advice. Today's episode is brought to you by the HOCL Association, the first trade association for the hypochlorous acid industry. HOCL is the chemical our white blood cells produce to fight infection, now available in shelf-stable form for the first time in human history. With dozens of use cases, HOCL is the most important chemical of the 21st century. Combining the strength of chlorine with the safety and versatility of water, HOCL will revolutionize skin care, wound care, pet care, disinfection, and usher in a new era of clean agriculture. It even works as a seed-to-sale additive for cannabis with dozens of incredible benefits. Learn more at hocla.org. My guest today is Will Schneider. Will has been teaching yoga, meditation, and mindfulness for over 10 years in New York City and now globally. Will has also been successfully integrating mindfulness into the cultures of several companies such as American Express, Weber Shandwick, Stash, and Ribbon Home. In 2017, Will climbed to the top of New York City's yoga world, being publicly recognized as one of the best teachers throughout the city. To spread more of his mindfulness message, in 2020, Will teamed up with retired Navy SEAL Commander John McCaskill and launched Men Talking Mindfulness, a podcast whose goal is to help men, women, and all people understand the essence of mindfulness and learn how to weave it into our lives. You can find Will on all social platforms at Will Not Fear and at willnotfear.com, as well as mentalkingmindfulness.com, and he's also very active on LinkedIn. Thank you so much for being here, Will, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Pacifico. Great to be with you today. I appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. My pleasure. So take me back a bit. What first brought you to teaching yoga and meditation? Actually, I jumped into meditation first, before, and yoga came right uh, along shortly after. I was looking to expand my creativity with the work I was doing. I, I moved to New York in 2003 with uh, dreams of pursuing more of my creative life as an actor. And uh, in order to just ground myself, be more present in the moment, the meditation made, it w- made its way into my life. And I was always a competitive athlete as well. So I was always like at the gym and running. And, and then I just slipped into a yoga class because I was just tired of pumping iron and looking at myself and my biceps and shoulders in the mirror. But I wanted to get a little bit deeper into my physiology and as well as my consciousness and my emotions, which I wasn't really aware at the time, stepping into those first yoga classes, that was going to be part of the practice. And, and then I ended up falling in love with the practice and I heard that if you want to master something, teach it. 
So I started teaching in, I got my first yoga certification in 2009. I've actually first trained with in transcendental meditation back in 2007 is when I got not certified, but when I first went through the training with that. And I've been, this has been a big part of my life ever since then. And, and it's it, like you said, in the intro, it's grown into many different things and it's beautiful. And I feel very blessed to be able to uh, make a life of this and, and bring these practices to a lot of people that might not be looking this direction. Oh, wow. So in terms of you became a practitioner of transcendental meditation, but mm -hmm. you've now moved towards like the mindfulness meditation side. And can you talk a little bit about that dichotomy and, and what made you move towards the mindfulness spectrum? It's there's mindfulness is the umbrella of many different types of practices, whether it's like being mindful of your walking, your eating, of your feelings, of your physical self, of your surroundings. And meditation is a, a part of that underneath that umbrella in which it's like a very particular practice in which you're focusing on one particular thing. Whereas in, in transcendental meditation, you're really just focusing and every meditation you're focusing on a mantra, which is something that is a mantra is something that's quietly to yourself repeated and resuscitated over and over again for uh, a 20 minute practice. And, and in TM, they recommend twice a day doing the same. It's the same practice. And, and they've shown, shown so many different scientific studies have been done on, on transcendental meditation. It really works and it, it, it really does help calm you down and create more creativity and create more a lot more self-awareness, which is so important. And then I've done other meditation practices. I guess that can be considered more of a mindfulness based kind of practice in the sense of like Vipassana meditation, which is the technique that the Buddha found and exercised in order to bring forth his own enlightenment. And the Vipassana meditation itself is a 10 day retreat in which you're doing nine to 10 hours of meditation every day and working in the beginning for the first like 30 hours of this journey, working with just doing simple breath awareness in your nostrils, which is called Anapana. And then out on the fourth day, you learn the technique of body scanning and, and just doing that. And every sit is one hour, which is really intense. So you can really learn a lot about yourself, sitting with yourself an hour, sitting with yourself and being with yourself for 10 days. And it's an incredible experience. So there, there are different types of, I think a lot of people think that meditation and mindfulness are the same thing, but they're not. Yeah, like I said, mindfulness is more of this broad spectrum kind of approach to being more present and be more conscious of your life. And meditation is a practice that helps to enhance the mindfulness experience of being more present and being more conscious of where you are and how you are and how you're feeling and what you're doing. Yeah, I'd always heard of TM for just years and years. I don't even know who first brought it up to me. And it was always something I was very curious about, like wanted to do. And I thought about it during, during law school a bit, and especially with a student discount, I was like, oh, this looks pretty good. <laughs> but just with a spouse in law school and kids in law school or raising kids while in law school, just like never got around to it. But as I launched a, a newer entrepreneurial journey at the beginning of this year, I was like, okay, I'm going to invest into this finally and, and really give it a go. I had, I'm a mm -hmm. certified yoga teacher. I haven't taught in several years, but I, you know, I've been practicing mindful medi mindfulness meditation and, and other forms of meditation for years and always felt like some sort of lack. I always felt, okay, when is this going to hit a different level? Like, when am I going to break through or something? When am right. I going to reach 
states of consciousness I'd reached on like psychedelics, for example. And because I I just had this feeling that there was something more there and I just wasn't getting to it. And I went to my first session to learn TM back in February. And it was like probably 60 seconds and boom, just down into the unbounded ocean of consciousness. And I was like, holy shit, like this is it's real like it's here yeah. it has just been mm-hmm. sitting here you know this whole time and, and it's any it's something anyone can access and it was really a pretty mind-blowing experience for me um especially that first time of just that first realization that yes like this is what it all is and this is something you can just do on your own with no external aids i think it's something that really reinforces the kind of the the mindset of the answers are all within you you don't have to go outside yourself you don't need a guru you don't need whatever school of teaching like everything exists in that you know sort of unified field and so for me it was like unlocking like a latent superpower that, that everyone has i'm at the point of evangelism like i think it should be like a human i think this should be like taught in schools and of course it's something i think they only teach children as young as 10 because you do need to be able to keep a secret essentially because you're not supposed to share your mantra with anyone else but when i see all the stuff out there with whether it's oprah or jerry seinfeld or whomever all these big celebrities are like oh tm is amazing and they all say they all talk about how incredible it is and i still think they undersell it a lot and i'm just yeah. like oh man like people don't even know and if they knew it's how it'd be it'd be a whole different world because it is like that kind of practice that you're like man if even like 25 percent of people did this just the shift in the collective unconscious i think would have to just be incredible right yeah i think it's meditation is that self-reflection or, or and being able to see that there's a greater experience drop by dropping into that ocean of consciousness that you talked about and with that self-realization that comes from you being part of a whole i feel that meditation brings forth a lot of responsibility self-ownership you begin to understand and how to be more kind to yourself and more compassionate and more patient so therefore i'm able to or any practitioner is able to be more kind and compassionate and patient with other people which is which is a huge bonus and you're right I, i've been living in new york for the last 18 years and i think it was around 2000 13, 14, I started seeing, I started seeing advertisements on the subway for meditation. I was like, oh my God, it's finally here. And, and but I know <laughs> New York is way ahead of the curve as far as progressive consciousness and kind of everything, even food, you know, and art and stuff or whatever. So, you know, I think it's going to take, uh, maybe not this, our generation, or maybe it'll be in 10 or 15 years that I hopefully to kind of come back to Malcolm or to go to Malcolm Gladwell, he hit that tipping point that 27.3% of the population like shifting their consciousness, utilizing meditation. And hopefully, boom, like we'll have this massive shift at a very rapid pace that just, oh, wait, like this is who we can be as human beings instead of trying to, trying to destroy one another seemingly and compete one another, keep compete and fight one, one another continually. How can we live in more harmony and how can that harmony really help us thrive as, as a population wherever we are and whatever we're doing? So you talked a bit about that more expansive umbrella view of mindfulness that it isn't yeah. mindful meditation or mindfulness meditation is just one mindful practice. So right. tell me a little bit more for our listeners how people can integrate mindfulness into their daily lives. 
it could be almost anything that you do. I think it's uh, just being aware of your breath is, or just being mindful of your breath. And I think that's the one thing. It's like awareness and mindfulness are almost the same word in some ways when you're thinking about the practice itself. Being mindful of your breath and maybe just, and it's maybe also being mindful of your emotions and understanding how when I get into an emotional state, if I just take a few breaths, big breaths and relaxing breaths, how I can really begin to shift my emotional experience. I can also be aware more of they have such practices as like mindfulness eating and really getting in touch with your food instead of just woofing it down in three minutes and going on to your next meeting. They practices of walking, mindfulness meditations and stuff like that. Just being also being more present for somebody else and really taking on active listening is a mindfulness pursuit instead of trying to implement your yourself and your experiences or your ego in when somebody's always trying to talk and one up them or compete with them or try to impress them in some way it's just holding space for them and these are the things that as you work more with your mindfulness just becoming more present just helps you become again coming back to what meditation in some ways help you become a responsible citizen and and it's on the show john and i talk about it a lot when i'm working with a company like weber shandwick or stash it's how can you really break down mindfulness into a simple practice that you can just even touch for just a few minutes a day. That can just be three minutes of being aware of your breath and being aware of your breath and of how you can take a bigger breath, which is another another level of awareness. And then how you can really manipulate your breath and slow your breath down and what that does to your your thinking mind and what that does to you emotionally and how that, you know, registers with you physically. So there's many different uh, entry ramps onto the road of mindfulness. And uh, you know what I suggest anybody out there that's listening and wants to become more mindful, it's pick something, but mindfulness needs to be exercised just like any muscle. If you want to be a great runner, you got to put the miles in. If you want to have big shoulders and get stronger across your chest or whatever, like you got to put the reps in and that's what mindfulness is like. And that's, we're really beginning to exercise, not just our brain, but a lot of our body, but using the brain and to focus, to focus and become more mindful of whatever that particular mindfulness pursuit that you have, but tapping it and practicing with it when I say tap it as often as you can, or just put it on your calendar, like any other appointment and just watch like you're experiencing Pacifico, like with your, with your TM meditation, it's whoa, like things are really changing, but you have to put forth the effort and have to build in the discipline in order to become more of this mindfulness and, and more responsible with yourself and your life and other people. So then tell me, what are you most excited for about this industry over the next decade? How is going to change as, yes, as an industry in a sense of money, but what is it going to do for us as a society? Like I feel we see so much in the news about how the world is being torn apart. And I'm glad we're having a conversation on the other side about how the world is coming together, which is ultimately how we're coming together and being with more of ourselves. And therefore we can be more conscious and, and, and more uh, connected to other people because of our connection to ourselves. So I'm really excited to see how we as a society begin, maybe in schools, for example, just imagine taking at a very young age, maybe in elementary school, first grade, second grade, all the way up until maybe high school, and just taking in the morning or maybe the afternoon before you go home for the day, just taking three minutes and getting in touch with your breath. Like, how is that going to change the focus in the classroom, the kindness that and the compassion, or at least the, the patience that might flow within a classroom? 
and where is that going to take us as these adults go as these young children become adults and enter the workforce so it's a very exciting time i feel for mindfulness and the reason i feel we're hearing so much more about mindfulness over the last like i said when i saw meditation being advertised in the subway i'm like all right something's changing and part of the reason things i think are changing so rapidly is because we're also feel all right, what I'm seeing or is just the world seems to be getting more chaotic and crazy and more destructive. And this is that the oppositional force that's coming through our kind of unconscious humanity of wait, like this is where we need to be. It's like kind of the, the light in the dark, the shadow of our kind of seeming the light of our consciousness now. So it's fascinating. And I also think mindfulness is becoming more prevalent in our society because of the unbelievable amount of stress, because of demands that people are pl- that are placed on people from whatever, from their family, from their email, from work, from trying to get to every single text message within three minutes, which is a ridiculous pursuit. I'm really excited for it. And that's why I keep teaching it. And that's why the podcast, I think, is growing so rapidly. Because it's not just, like I said, like I mentioned at the beginning, the podcast for everybody. But to have men teach uh, mindfulness, I think other men might be a little like are tuning in because of that craziness and the chaoticness and the, and the stress that I talked about. It's a very exciting time. And, and we're seeing like, I'm seeing some of the, the, from their profiles on LinkedIn, some of the boldest or badass or hyper masculine men, or even toxic masculine men starting to be like, Whoa, this stuff really works. And it works because now I'm I'm a better person at work. I'm a better person with my wife and my kids. I'm a better person in my community just by taking a few moments every day and just being aware of who I am. Yeah, and I think it's been interesting as well. The other major force I think has really been what I would term like the democratization of information through, you know, Mm -hmm. social media has been a big part of it. But I think things like TikTok have really increase that and magnified it in very significant ways because normally for eons we've just had some form of media showing some sort of narrative and and mostly it's the sort of if it bleeds it leads if it's controversial or negative uh, then that's what's going to get eyeballs that's what's going to get ad revenue and so on and now you have these decentralized formats a bit where you've got people from all over the world sharing their own stories having spiritual awakenings and there is if you look on tiktok you would think oh there's like this massive spiritual shift going on worldwide right like an awakening and then if you look at cnn or fox news or, or msnbc or anything you're gonna say oh it's like the world's in tatters it's just chaos and all this stuff and so right. we are like at that point maybe it's the unstoppable force versus the immovable object conundrum mm-hmm. that you have a bit there but it has been really inspiring to see how many people are able to sort of start actually questioning the narratives of that they've that have been foisted upon them for their entire lives like you've got so many people more interested now in what is essentially cultural deprogramming is okay i need to decondition myself from all the ways that society has conditioned me and what ways can i act in the world that can actually be more healthy and i think this is something with your 
the side that you do that is really like men's work essentially is really important because I was just talking to someone about the old hashtag, like men are trash. And there's, <laughs> um, there's clearly a reason that came about. We live in a world where that came about for a very significant and true reason. But at the same time, it's okay, do we accept that as just, oh, this is like a biological reality, just like men suck? Or is this the result of years of cultural conditioning that we can actually completely reverse. So is there actually a way that we can say, oh, we don't have to create a a society built on toxic masculinity. We can actually create a society built on empowering young boys and men to get to know themselves better, to be more mindful of who they are, more mindful of their actions, more caring of other people in a different way than we're taught to be caring in a way that actually centers other people and not just, oh, I'm, I'm the big strong man. I can take care of a woman. I can take care of children or whatever. That's really, oh, how can I open myself to be a caring member of society that is not driven by ego and not driven by toxic masculine paradigm? Yeah. And we're starting to see that shift. I love when you were talking about running up against a I feel a very old and archaic way of functioning as society. You can go back into the history and look at like why this, these toxic masculine norms have formed. And it's, they say it's linked to the whole idea of money and capitalism and all that kind of stuff. Whereas like cultures before uh, modern civilization were actually female driven or not driven, but female centric in the sense of they were the leaders of the community because they have a whole different way of uh, a whole different biology in the sense of like creating a home and nesting. And I'm not saying that women can't do, can't be great CAOs and world leaders and stuff like that at all, but they already, they have this biological predisposition to connect, to create a comfortable home and in, in, in environment for not just their immediate family, but for the community. Um, and we're also the masculine. We also have that feminine side as well. And the work that John and I, like one of our first guest last uh, season was Liz Plank, who wrote a great book called For the Love of Men, which really began to, I've actually, I've worked in with the Divine Feminine. That was actually my second yoga training. I worked with this wonderful teacher here in New York, Kelly Morris. This is like 2012, where I did my second training two and a half, three years after my first training in 2009. And I wanted to go deeper into the feminine, because I was raised in a small town, raised with a lot of these hyper-masculine and toxic masculine values of being the provider, being the protector, being prideful, thriving, or think we're thriving because of our anger and frustration and how we can dominate and the aggressiveness and stuff like that. And that, and these are rewarded behaviors typically for that, for the, for like the old paradigm of masculinity and that toxic masculine values. Whereas in uh, Liz's book, she talks about all these values and how they've incorporated, you know, into our society over the last like thousands of years. And it's like in, in so many different civilized cultures. And now we're at this opportunity. Another great book is Reinventing Masculinity by Ed Fraunheim and Ed Adams. They had our, they, we had him on the show as well and beginning to shift mindfully and through mindfulness Right. By really with sitting in groups of men or that's why John and I come together as two men to help everybody again, but to help men be, look in a direction of liberating masculinity. So we're not just working and exercising these hyper masculine values of, like I said, a protector, provider, aggression, anger, but begin to understand ourselves as compassionate and patient 
human beings and what does that compassion and that patience and, and really being present for other people, how does that begin to help us be uh, better people? And when we begin to exercise this, this, this spectrum of liberating masculinity, which includes all of our feelings, how we actually are happier human beings. And it's nice to be, I feel like yourself as well, we're on this um, forefront of changing the masculine, which will ultimately change so much of all this. If it leads, it bleeds on the news cycles and stuff like that. And we're here, we're seeing, here comes the freaking Taliban. Once again, in Afghanistan, which is, they're just, they're, it's all masculine. They're, women are considered second-class citizens and sad to see that rise, but like that, that darker consciousness is still there. But as a world, it might, might not look like we're shifting into, or it might not sound like it because of the news cycles that we're shifting in to this more of a liberating masculine, but also like how that's going to change. And I, I don't want to sound like, oh, it all has to do with men and everybody follows, you know, masculine, our lead. But it's like when we begin as men to discover and understand more of some of our feminine qualities. And I say that knowing that men might be like, oh, I don't have any feminine in me. And that's a bunch of bullshit because you absolutely do. You have an X and a Y chromosome, right? That's what makes us men. And so, whereas women are just XX. So we definitely have that even on, on the genetic level. And so it's a really exciting time. It's a very exciting time for men and all people. Well, it's interesting when you look back to, even with a lot of what meditation itself is working to do is like, fighting against like our lizard brain right like fighting against things that are so yeah. entrenched in our dna and our psyche right. that right. this is brought up to a complete societal level which in some ways even though it's a maybe a larger number it is still something that's not totally innate to our biology so it's mm. something that we can actually work with because like i often think of how yeah, I find it ridiculous when people of, of any gender or sex like talk about not having qualities of the other when yeah. every single person on earth is a recursive combination of male and female genetics going back to before we were human. And so as you continue to just combine that and combine that, of course, it I think it practically, I think it frankly goes beyond a spectrum uh, in terms of, of gender and is really more like a galaxy because there's just yeah. so many variables that have gone into it that it's trying to pick out a point inside a sphere, right? Like that's where the individual to me really resides versus, oh, okay, here's this like zero to 100 masculine to feminine spectrum and you're just, you're a 37 or whatever you're, you know, right. um, wherever yeah. you fall on there. I think it's so much bigger than that. And it's something that isn't really talked about much and is not something that people are generally predisposed to thinking about because the world just likes to think in black and white and simple dichotomies and man and woman and there's only one way to be this person or this gender or this sex right. and it's really so much more expansive than that and it's been wild to be alive at a time when that's really coming into the foreground this isn't a conversation we could have in 1955 right. it's really i think we're on this precipice of awakenings that span gender and mindfulness and so many different human qualities that are all coming together at once you look at the even the psychedelics industry right i've had a lot of people on from that industry lately and just looking at how much 
that is pushing progress in a variety of areas that you look at somewhere like cannabis or California, where cannabis is pretty much like passe at this point or whatever yeah. old news. Yeah. Let's like get started on mushrooms and a boga and some other stuff. Yeah. And people are just pushing forward through there and just saying, Hey, like we can actually fundamentally design society in a totally different way. And we can think right. in a different way. We can use different things to get in touch with ourselves. But it also raises the question of if all these things are successful, right? If people start being more mindful, if people start meditating more, if people are having spiritual awakenings, if they're using psychedelics, 10, 20, 30, 100 years down the road, as more people have woken up, what happens to the human condition writ large? Right. Like we talk about, oh, yeah, if, if you had millions of people or billions of people like meditating at the same time or something like that would clearly cause some sort of huge shift. But what would it actually look like to be able to govern and lead humanity on that level? Hey, we're stepping up. Imagine if we had the Internet when humans first just came into being right like when we first reached that intellectual level of oh hey now we're a different species and we're thinking in this way and we're now able to like communicate it and now we are here on this precipice of being able to say okay we can actually hit this other level as a species and as a society but we need to be thinking from there not just thinking of there we need to think like how do we act then yeah I, you bring up I, I think what's interesting about a couple things that go back like we're we're Thankfully, epigenetics is real, which basically says our DNA is also a product of our environment. So we're, and you, you talked about the reptilian brain, and that's, we've been wired as the world is a threat for millions and millions of years because yeah. the world has been a threat because of predators, because of the weather, because of like shelter, because of scarcity of food. But if you think about it over the last like 300 and some years, right, a lot of, in most societies, but in the societies that are more advanced, our basic needs are taken care of, like food, shelter, water, but we're still running on the old reptilian software, where is this mindfulness is going to create an, an upgrade into that software. But part of that, that old archaic reptilian software is this masculine approach of linearity, right? This is one thing that was very clear when I was studying this divine feminine. It's like men are designed, like you said, zero to a hundred. Where I'm on the scale, we see all of our hierarchical structures within corporations as well as within government aspiring continually to this old software of like linearity. Whereas like by nature and how we thrive as people is through a collective, is through a circular approach, is to including others instead of being like, hey, just listen to what the fuck I'm saying. And if you don't like it, get out of the way. I think that's a that's an interesting point that you bring up as far as like the reptilian brain. And then here we are. It's like what's pushing more forward through the psychedelics it, or, or, or pushing mindfulness forward is the psychedelics. And the cannabis is a great way to just relax people's mind and their nature. And maybe they can actually be more patient and listen to other people, which is great. The the psychedelics like mushrooms are get you deeper into the conscious experience that, that we're all that we're all having. But on a very interesting and very potentially very like massive level for people, just having a massive epiphany. Something like Abigail, I haven't um, dabbled with, but I've been with ayahuasca several times. And to really sit with this plant medicine that really helps to show you who you can be and what you are and how you're wired and, and how compassion and kindness are and love are the answers. That's the answers to to all of our problems, is the, is, are one of those three things or all of those things typically. 
So it's a very fascinating time right now as we begin to see this linear model of how we've been designed in, I don't know if there's really any kind of a female or, or circular um, kind of conscious ways out there. I think Bhutan has what they said. They have the, instead of a GDP, they have a, the, a GHP, the gross hap- happiness product. So they're actually trying to measure their their society based on instead of product and, and, and money, how they are happiness collectively as citizens in a group, in a society. So it, it is happening in a lot of ways and it's exciting to, to be a part of this. And mindfulness is just a way of us to, we have these great, incredibly profound moments with psychedelics, but then it's, but then it just fades unless you, and you can't really necessarily do LSD or mushrooms or ayahuasca all the time because it's just not meant to be abused. You can abuse it, but then it's going to abuse you and it can really send you some dark places. Whereas like using these psychedelics, and I know cannabis isn't a psychedelic, it's like more of a it's something else, or even in a pathogen, something like MDMA really shows us who we can be. And there's some sort of inherent truth in these, in these psychedelics that we just can't ignore because it puts us right into our heart space. A lot of them, like the pathogens for sure, and, and I know ayahuasca does, and mushroom just unlocks some of these um, these conscious structures that we've been given you know, as children, as students, as workers. And it's just, wait, this doesn't make any sense anymore. And we can do something different. And I'm so glad so many more people are knocking on the door and questioning the way we're doing things because that's how things begin to change. And that's really where awareness starts. And Mindfulness is just the practice of becoming more aware. Yeah, I think you raise a great point in relation to psychedelics that the missing piece is really that integration piece. You don't need to just go to Costa Rica and sit in ceremony and then just go back and, and change absolutely nothing about your life or don't share the experience. I think that's a big part of the importance of destigmatization too, that we need more people having psychedelic experiences and talking about them. And I think I grew up with the D.A.R.E. program and it was just like, every drug's going to fucking kill you. I vividly remember learning about PCP in first grade, which like now I'm just like, why are we teaching first graders about PCP? First of all, like super rare to encounter. (laughs) It's like fairly obscure. But at the same time, everything was like totally detached from reality. And the more I look back on it, I know why it happens. But at the same time, it's like, why can't we just be honest with everyone? Why can't we just say, hey, here's what X chemical or substance does. Here are the pros and cons. Here's what you need to look out for. I had a really fascinating conversation with a guy named uh, Aaron Cruz a few weeks back. And he talked about the different personalities of different psychedelics, right? Like ayahuasca being the mother peyote being the father mushrooms being the children and and we had a really interesting conversation about lsd where it's just it doesn't have what you call i think a diva it doesn't have its own sort of energy to it that just is going to teach you a lesson whereas like you do ayahuasca and it's going to come out and be like hey here's what you need to fucking know get your yeah. shit together on this whereas yeah. acid it's much more you're just like a consciousness explorer you're just out there on your own you can try and figure out different things and find different answers. And it can be difficult for people because I think the really 
good answers, like the really impactful answers come from what most people would term, quote unquote, a bad trip, which is a thing I don't think exists. I think yeah. bad trips are mostly just people being led into places where their their mind, their own mind is calling on them to do the work. Yeah. It's calling on them to say, hey, you need to do this inner work because this part about you is fucked up or you haven't done this well in the world and you're not necessarily a good person in, in these metrics or something like that. And it's really hard, I think, for people to cope with. But if you can sit with that discomfort, there's a lot of opportunity for growth. And, you know, I'm yeah. on the one hand, I'm someone who I, I view I have a very expansive view of what drugs are. I think everything is a drug in yeah. a certain context. But fundamentally, I also think drugs writ large in the way that most people think about them are just cheat codes to different yeah, things. It's like putting yeah. a game genie on your old Nintendo and getting unlimited lives to mess around in Contra or whatever. And so it becomes this way to just get a shortcut into, oh, hey, what do I need to be doing? What's actually going on? Who am I really? But you can't just leave it at that. Like it has to come back to your normal life because it, it's fascinating to even look at things like LSD that are self-limiting, right? If you do a, a tab of acid today, tomorrow you do a tab of acid and it's only going to work at 50%. So you actually need to take a few days off automatically or you need to up the dosage. But eventually it's like very quickly spirals out of control, like the old grains of rice on the chessboard. Right? Yeah. You don't want to keep yeah. like doubling your LSD dose. And then a few days later, like you just never come down. And there's lots of you know horror stories about that kind of thing. But that responsible occasional use, I think, is really refreshing to see that's where the industry is coming from writ large i think a lot more than even cannabis was i think cannabis was something where people were so desperate to have it legalized that nobody wanted to address the, any of the elephants in the room about cannabis use right whether mm -hmm. it was certain strains causing anxiety or certain strains causing depression or mm -hmm. just people not knowing exactly what they were going for but everyone i've talked to in the psychedelic industry has been very big on making sure that there are ways to engage in integration properly so yep. that you're actually having an experience that's not just going to be like one night you had an amazing epiphany or something and then like your life just continues on the same track like you didn't necessarily want it to and so i, yeah. I definitely find that encouraging that the industry i think is in in a lot of ways a bit more mature just mm -hmm. psychologically, I think cannabis was starting out. That's not to say there aren't people that are going to just try and make a buck and have fly by night operations. But right. I think those people are going to get snuffed out pretty quickly in a way that they not they haven't necessarily been in the cannabis industry. Well, it's we can't deny the results that whether it's an empathogen like MDMA or what LSD is doing to addiction, we can't like with PTSD, we can't we can't deny these the science that and the science has been around for, since the 50s. It was actually funded by the government for a decade right. until freaking Nixon came along and took it away from us. And, and what's in place put alcohol in its place, which is like, what is that? It's a depressant, it creates so much destruction in our society, but it also keeps us, I think, numb and dumb. And keeps us like living into the, oh yeah, I'll just go back to work tomorrow and get drunk later tonight and just not question my life where now we're seeing like, even the Beatles were a great example. Like they did LSD like crazy. Their music changed dramatically like Sgt. Pepper, but then it was unsustainable to do LSD all the time. So then they found TM, 
which is yep. a more sustainable practice, but it's still boom, brought up all of this great creativity with all these amazing albums that came out. Like it's, it's, we're just in such a fascinating place because of mindfulness, because of the, the drugs that we're talking about and, and these medicines, really, it's a medicine for the soul. It's a medicine for the mind. It's a medicine mm. for our community. It's a medicine for our heart. Ultimately, it comes back to self is where it starts. And this is beginning to remind us of that heart-centered self that we are inherently have. Every single person has this. We thrive. Again, I did my last ayahuasca experience in Memorial Day weekend this year. And I sat for two nights. The first time I sat for two nights in a row. And the second night, I had this incredible experience. And what the mother was, Mother Ayahuasca kept telling me and kept talking to me about. And I kept you know, coming back to was kindness and, and love is the truth. And it's, that's really where we, where we function best as people and where we're going to feel the happiness or the feel our greatest and feel the most happiness and the most joy and where we're going to thrive as human beings is coming from that place of love and kindness and what comes through or what are some of those attributes that come along with love and kindness. That's that patience and that's that, that compassion and all the things that really make us uh, not just thrive as an individual, but begin to thrive as a humanity. So again, it's just, it's exciting. And these conversations like that we're having and, and, and so many other people are having, you, you talked about your friend out there. It's, it's, we can't deny this tech, this medicine anymore, which just is like this biological technology that is finally being incorporated into our society and therefore changing our consciousness. Yeah, it has been pretty amazing to watch. Like I talked about earlier, just like states forging ahead, just, okay, let's do it. Let's just go. And because they saw to some extent, to some degree, it worked with cannabis. It was just like, okay, not enough people have an experience of cannabis. So like, we just need to keep moving forward because we know it works. There was a study done like earlier this summer that came out earlier this summer and said some over 60% of people didn't think psychedelics have medicinal, any medical value. And yeah, I was right. like, and I'm thinking of it and I'm like, wait a minute. There's no way even 30% of people have ever tried a psychedelic. And I think when I looked it up, it was somewhere between maybe 15 and 20% at most. And, but we look at, you look back at issues like same-sex marriage and cannabis, and it's, what do people need? People need a personal experience. That's what really changes hearts and minds especially when it's something you otherwise wouldn't agree with politically, for example. And so the more that we can get these conversations out there and that people openly talk about things they've done that are, yeah, totally illegal. Oh, hey, I've done this hallucinogen this many times, or this is the first time I did it, and this is what happened, and this is how it helped me. And I, I will never tell people that you'll never hear me say that psychedelics are just a, a panacea and they're going to heal everything. But I think the thing is there's we are confronted by an onslaught every day of propaganda and advertising and misinformation and things that are created by entrenched power structures. And so it becomes mm -hmm. very difficult to, as just an independent person, to figure out what's true, how we should structure society, how we can restructure society, and different ways that we can do things. But when you do, and that's why I think psychedelics are a great like blunt force instrument in a lot of ways like you said it is medicine for the soul but when you give your soul medicine you start to realize the ridiculousness of so much of what goes on from a societal perspective that it's like, yeah. oh wait a minute yeah we could just choose love like we actually don't need to be bombing the shit out of 
different countries for exactly. decades and decades on end. What if the, I've talked about this before, like what if most of our funding was in the Department of State instead of Department of Defense? Or what if we encouraged world leaders to do psychedelics together? No Things shit, you would think are just <laughs> totally crazy, but it's like, if you went in and you could get everyone in the UN, right, in the UN General Assembly to take a dose together. Well, just, just smoke a joint. Just right. smoke oh, yeah. I'll just, joint. So, yeah, exactly. You know, just, like, just pass left all in a G7. You know, what are the, <laughs> instead of, and what does alcohol do? Alcohol right. makes us angry. It fires up our liver. It makes us hot. And therefore, we're, but it's always on the menu. It, yeah, it's always on the menu, but not a nice, big, fat blunt. <laughs> you know, a good old hybrid that can really just chill us out. And it's alcohol is on the menu, which is how incredible. I mean, we, and how about the science behind alcohol and the human condition and human spirit and what it does to societies and families? But we just ignore that and be like, oh, yeah, it's fine. But you just say, hey, let's smoke a joint or, or whatever. Take a puff of a pen or, or, or drop some acid or something like that. Be like, no, oh my God, no way. But it's okay to get drunk and be abusive and be an asshole. Yeah, I've always thought about, yeah, you look at like the opioid epidemic and obviously that starts at the very beginning, it starts with pain management, but then it just becomes escaping reality, which is the ironic thing about it because any psychedelic or hallucinogen, you're escaping reality in a different way that is actually making, is is actually heightening reality more versus when you look at something like morphine or heroin or fentanyl or any other opiates, it's actually numbing you to life. Whereas psychedelics are enriching your lived experience. It's opening up possibilities, right? Whether it's mushrooms showing you the interrelated like fractals of nature or it's Mm -hmm. MDMA of experiencing one human family and, and just gaining a level of empathy that is otherwise very difficult to independently engage with, especially in like on an emotional level. You can certainly sit here and intellectually just say, yes, we're all one human family. But like when you take MDMA, you actually feel it. And especially when other people are on it, if you're at a ray with 10,000 people and a plurality at least are on, are on some type of MDMA, you're going to feel that. And you're, the feeling you will get of love and enrichment through that experience of other people is virtually unrivaled in terms of different experiences you can create for yourself. But it is something that people need to be able to experience in safe environments to introduce them to the possibilities of it. Because it's like yeah. uh, for everyone that's just been taking opiates and for years to escape the pain of modern life what if you actually took something that made you love life more that made you love yourself more that made you see what is actually real and what actually matters that was the thing for me of i have gone i've traveled for millions of years across millions of miles and different dimensions and all sorts of realities across a variety of psychedelics but the first time i did tm I was like, oh, shit, it's just all right here. All those things helped me get there independently with the different substances. But then coming back and saying, oh, my God, like there's I can actually get here myself with my own brain. And I was like, oh, I actually don't need to use these now because I can get where I need to be, like just using my own brain. And I don't, I definitely haven't hung up the phone forever just because I find psychedelics enjoyable, but it's definitely something that I'm like, oh, I can just go explore my consciousness 
myself with absolutely no other inputs. And that's something very difficult to embrace just from the outset, which is why I think psychedelics are a great entry point to that, right? It's, hey, go and read the end of the book or go and see how things really are and then come back and then learn how to get there on your own. And then you can actually go through the rest of your life like that. So it is a way to create a more enlightened species in a lot of ways, I think, and that if we can tear down the power structures that have present that have prevented it, we can go a long way at improving society. It has been wild to watch the psychedelic industry start to build itself and take off in a way that I think is actually going to be long lasting and sustainable, even though there are so many entrenched power structures that really don't want people waking up. Right. Like, right or questioning yeah. things and exactly. frankly it's been fascinating because the pandemic has separately done that to a very large degree yeah. everyone is always oh you can't work from home you can't have yeah. this you Bullshit. can't you can't have we can't cancel student loans or we can't pause student loans and then the pandemic's like oh yeah we can do all of those things we can do right. anything and you just need that to shine a shine a light in a lot of ways. And so it's had, you know, a very, I think, mirror effect of the same way in which psychedelics can show you that, hey, there's a different way to do things that we've just mm-hmm. had everyone experience the same thing. It was just like, oh, yeah, we can actually fundamentally restructure society in a different way. So why not do that? And then that just becomes that's, I think, the new great battle that we're waging now. Yeah, well, the pandemic, uh, it really showed us. It gave people a time to sit home alone. I kept, when the pandemic hit the first couple months, I kept coming back to this Pascal quote. It's, it's very difficult. I'm going to butcher this quote. It's, it's something about it's very difficult for a man or human beings to sit in a room alone quietly <laughs> with themselves. And, and I think the pandemic has, it, it, it speaks to the things that you spoke of, which I love as far as working and distributed teams and that sort of thing. But it's also helped to accelerate, I feel, mindfulness. Because it's, wait, I I, this, I can't be going crazy. What could I do to stop, prevent, pre- prevent myself from going crazy? And then I think that also begins to push more of this psychedelic revolution that we're seeing as well. Yeah, because I think it comes back to it. And states are going to fight it. But the ones that in our country that have legalized some of these ketamine, there's ketamine clinics in Los Angeles, which is amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But, but there's some sort of, when we go on this journey with psychedelics, like there is some, again, some sort of inherent truth that we cannot deny because it brings forth this like part of our DNA and our this unconsciousness that we become privy to when we do psychedelics that it's just, whoa, it's I feel amazing. I feel great. You know, it's it's I'm, I'm, I could be a different person. It shows you that in a lot of ways. But then it's the experience of coming out. It's like, how can I begin to, to be in pursuit of being this this more of a conscious individual instead of just walking around like a total shithead and just using and abusing (laughs) yourself and everybody else which yeah where's it get it where does it get you more depression you drink more alcohol you start doing more destructive things you start just and and then you align yourself with people that are doing the same dumb shit and that's that all that dumb shit's been happening for a very long time and it's we're crippling the planet in the sense of doing that, we can't, we think, I, I hear people like, oh, feel bad for the planet. I'm like, we're part of the planet and the planet doesn't give a shit, you know, what we do on it. It'll just keep going on for another billion years and recycle some sort of new life form. We're ultimately destroying ourselves. And all the stuff we're talking about, mindfulness, meditation, the psychedelics are leading this new charge. I mean, like, wait, we need to live in harmony, not just with ourselves, but also the rest of the world and the rest of the planet and, and all the different wonderful things that make this 
planet what it is and instead of taking away from this delicate balance you know how could we begin to thrive with all things and especially just begin to thrive with ourselves which will just create more happiness and and therefore we can potentially bring more happiness to the collective and to the planet so it's a very exciting time and what i'm really enjoying is seeing is seeing men wake up we've suffered so much from at a very young age with these with these hyper masculine toxic values of masculinity and to realize hey it's okay to say i'm sorry it's okay to be kind it's okay to be patient with, with other people it's it's really starting to happen and it, and it's exciting to, to to again to be on the forefront of of this shifting consciousness because we all hands on deck we can't it can't just be one group of people. It's one group of people will lead, but the others others will follow in this sense of like you're having a ketamine experience. You're going to talk about your friends or cannabis for the first time or a mushroom experience. Alaska, like you mentioned earlier, this de democratization of information. And now we can have, get more intimate conversations like one-on-one, like we're doing and share this knowledge and the experiences that we've had with other people and hopefully to inspire them to, to look in the direction of mindfulness or look in the direction of meditation or look in the direction of psychedelics as a means to just help them just be happier individuals. Imagine if we just have what 20 or 10% happier planet, what, what choices are going to be made and not be made because of that little boost in happiness. Oh, absolutely. And it is pretty wild, like just reflecting on my own starting to make a foray into the psychedelic industry, just talking and meeting more people. And and I find by and large, like the, the men in the industry, I find are a, a different type of of person, a different type of man, less toxic, generally, I would say gentler, and also embracing of the work right of embracing of hey we're all works in progress that work is never done but you do want to get there is an importance of getting to a fundamental level of operate like mode of operation that is healthier kinder more loving more supportive more collaborative that it doesn't need to be like cutthroat and everything and i know it i saw like in the cannabis like there in the cannabis industry like there's a lot of bullshit they're from small shady individuals to massive corporations multi-state operators that just are just terrible whether they're cooking the books or they raise a bunch of venture capital and it's just a house of cards and there's like a lot of rude awakenings that are going to come to that industry especially as we approach full legalization and what things will look like after that whereas in the psychedelic industry i've seen a lot more people who are introspective people who mm. want to make the like healthiest possible environment for people to do all this. I think there's definitely like a, an undertone of like, Hey, we don't want to screw this up, which I think there is that in cannabis for a little while. And then there just got to be so many operators, so many fly by night operations that are just like looking to make a quick buck or screw people over in whatever way, shape or form. Whereas I think the psychedelic industry at a meta level is really looking to create a healthier industry overall that is about research and collaboration and kindness and helping people to get to where they need to be creating safe experiences, which I think is also good because it is taking seriously the subject matter of what they're dealing with, right? right. I'm not one for the overly clinical approach 
to psychedelics. I think what is needed is an authentic and, and honest and open approach, right? So right. I don't think you need doctors in lab coats, but I think you need people telling you the truth about what you might experience on certain things, how severe the experiences might be. And I've really been encouraged and I'm hoping to get more involved with some of these different organizations that are essentially like trip sitters or even like emergency phone lines, right? Like almost a suicide hotline, but it's not for suicide. It's just like for people having a bad, you know, quote unquote, bad trip or a severe or an intense experience on psychedelics where you can just, hey, like you can just talk people through how things are going. Hey, this is what you might be experiencing or tell me about your experience and how can I sort of re-tether you <laughs> to our shared reality or something like that. And so I have been really encouraged just with, I would say, like the personality of the industry writ large, mm. I think yeah. is really cool. And I think it does, I think it does mirror a bit like the the yoga meditation side of the health and wellness industry, which obviously supplements and stuff and other things like there's a lot of, oh, what is this? But at the same time, like I think just there's a lot of really wonderful people trying to solve a really big problem to mainstream psychedelics and to mainstream the inner work. Because like fundamentally, right. that's what it's all about. Is I've seen yeah. so many different people that are offering like, oh, hey, like, we're going to come and help you do some sort of trip. And all of them have integration practices. It's, hey, if you're not willing to meet with us for two weeks prior and two weeks after your trip experience, wherever it's going to be, then like, get lost like we're not going to right. cope with that because you they put a lot more importance on that and so it's been really fascinating to see the differences there between a lot of other counterculture industries but i think it's going to be you know a really positive change for the industry itself and the world writ large yeah it's really it's really happening it's i think maybe partially i'm in my little bubble in new york city and you know it's just pretty prog very progressive in a lot of ways and i'm in this industry like yourself of developing more consciousness through mindfulness and all these other practices but like when i come from a small town in pennsylvania 25,000 people or something like that hazelton and my mom maybe it was may or june she's she kept seeing multiple advertisements for mindfulness and I'm just like, boom, this hit my little small town on their like you know, <laughs> boob tube. Like this is really happening. And yeah. it's, uh, yeah, it's like I said, it's just unbelievable to, to be a part of this. Like in Men Talking Mindfulness, the podcast, it's, we're trying, we're have our, we have, we're going to have two episodes on psychedelics this season. We already have one down. We're going to bring some experts in that are helping heroic uh, hearts, we're going to say heroic hearts project that are bringing ayahuasca experiences to veterans that have been suffering with PTSD. Mm. And we're also bringing in, we're going to be talking about sleep this season. We just had James Nestor on talking about the power of breath, which is all like talking about one of the fundamental practices to become more mindful is just beginning to find your breath. And it's, it's awesome. But also to see the response, it's like our listenership right now is about, I think it's 87% men and it's 80% and that those men are from like age 29 to like 55 because we've, as a masculine I'm not saying women don't suffer at all or haven't suffered on their own, but also at the hands of men. It's, or, or we're just, we're, I think we're tired of suffering. We're, we're, and we used to talk mm. about earlier, it's like the structures of how we've done things just don't fucking work anymore. Yeah. You know, and the psychedelics and these conversations we're having and this information being disseminated through across the world in such an easy way that people can digest. It's like making people wake up and question it's wait, who am I? And how do I begin to understand who I am 
And then who do I begin? What is the adventure? What is the journey? What are the practices to continually pull away all the layers? They call them koshas, right? In yoga, to pull away the koshas, right? That prevent us from getting to the the inner, the Atman on the inside, mm -hmm. which is our true nature, which is the happiness and the love and the kindness and the compassion, all the wonderful things that we're able to experience and have experienced, not just through a psychedelic experience or whatever, or cannabis or something like that, but that we have like when we're making love or we have when we have the, the birth of, our, of a child or a celebration at a wedding or something like that. Like we're, we love those experiences and we have these systems and, and celebrations and traditions built in our society to remind us of who we are and how we thrive as people. And it's just growing in, in, in different ways. And uh, I know I keep saying it's exciting <laughs> because it is very exciting. <laughs> it's like for me, yeah. because like I see family members suffer with alcohol mm -hmm. and, and other kind of abuse. And also like uh, this whole abundance versus scarcity mentality. And we've been living with that scarcity you know, mindset, which is that reptilian brain is like, there's not enough. Life is a threat. How could I defend myself? And we're realizing like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's like being abundant with love and more generous with our our own money and stuff like that and or with our things and our experiences and telling our stories it's really helping to to move things forward and it's just really beautiful to have this conversation and be a part of this oh absolutely couldn't agree more so tell me yeah. how has a failure or an apparent failure set you up for later success and do you have a favorite failure one thing with as far as even failure as a concept to me, and this came through some work that I had done a long time ago, it's I, I like the idea there's no such thing as failure, but I feel there actually is failure if you don't learn from an experience and then get back up and then try to do better the next time. So that's just like the theoretical idea of failure, because I think there's a fantastic teaching in, in failure. I'm trying to think of a specific example of, I failed miserably as an actor. I mean, like the additions and stuff that I went through. And one of my coaches, acting teachers and coaches from years ago, he goes, if you're going to fall flat on your face, you might as well get a bloody nose. So it helped me be really bold, all these failures and just realizing I just got to put my best foot and effort forward. And I think with all those failures as an actor, and then just all the different things that I've tried to bring more mindfulness and consciousness to others, what I've, what failure has taught me is the biggest keys to success are authenticity and vulnerability. And the more I can just even admit when I fuck up in the middle of class, like sometimes I remember my, there's this moment in class when my very first classes as a teacher with a group of 60 people in the room and I'm like teaching my third class and I was nervous and I'm early on in class and I'm telling people, it's like, all right, everybody, right? Feel your breast. And I was like, oh, fuck, man. I said the word breast instead of breath. And I'm like sitting in <laughs> class, you know, and I'm in class. And in that moment, I was like, I just, I brought levity to it. I just got really vulnerable and authentic. And I was like, oh, I didn't mean to say that. So this is going to be a really fun class. And the room just cracked up because like I just got real raw and real and, uh, and, and authentic and vulnerable with them. And that's how I began to move forward as a teacher. Because it's like, as long as my heart's in the right place, my intention is, is, is heartfelt and heart led, then it's how can I really fail when I'm just doing the best I can like everybody else? And, but I'm not necessarily as concerned about the results, uh, but more keyed on than the experience and how, and also that experience being like, how can I help other people? 
Mm. That sounds mortifying. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's, that, dude, it, it is. That class. I mean, Especially yeah. with that many people. I probably, our, our studio I learned at was, I learned to be a teacher at was pretty small size, mostly 20, 30 people max or something like yeah. that. Usually yeah. taught between 10 and 20 people. But oh yeah, I love that. And I always love the teachers that can bring that humor and, and levity to it because yeah, I think it's exactly. there's so many places where it's yoga is serious this has yeah. to be serious and boring and what's bullshit and I'd have yeah. other teachers who I'm recalling like Grace Morales who's down in Charlotte she's just incredible and it was like you're hopping and popping and she's cracking jokes and you're just like loving life and I think that having people laugh in a yoga class is so disarming it really changes the energy in a a room and i thought that was really cool as well because it was one of the first venues in which i was able to better perceive energy physically and especially in hot yoga because there's it's just amplified a bit and being able to be that energy worker for people in that space and be able to craft an experience that is enriching across a variety of dimensions for people is, you know, I think incredibly powerful and really enjoyed my experience as a, as a teacher in those days. Yeah. Well, I think if you're going to be an entrepreneur or start your own business or, or really put yourself out there, it's like failure is just part of the course, but it's, it's the failure that makes you stronger. You become more resilient. You ask better questions. You begin to organize yourself in a different way. So it's, if you're playing it safe, God bless you, because it's gonna. That's where the frustration and the stress and the alcohol and the abusive yeah. behavior to yourself comes from. But if you're gonna take that risk and go out in the skinny branch, it's failure. It's just it's. Hey, we can't have, think about it. The opposition of things. We can't have success without failure. It just does. It just does not happen. They're two sides of the same coin. So embrace the failures and and really learn from the failures. So hopefully you have a better shot at success as you move forward with the next time your next shot. Yeah. When I think that's really, it's really powerful too. looking at like the psychedelics industry, especially in, when you talk about like authenticity and everything like that is that this is now hundreds and, and thousands of people going out on a limb into something that is virtually completely illegal across the entire world. And it's this group of pioneers that is essentially saying, no, there's a better way. And we're going to try and get there. And a lot of that is going to be about opening up and being authentic about our experiences with these various plant medicines and different chemicals is saying, hey, like this can actually help people in a huge way. And we're going to, you know, tackle this problem in a variety of from a variety of angles, whether it's going like the FDA approval route, or it's cities and states just saying, fuck it, Let's decriminalize this. Let's just let people do it. I think fundamentally that to explore your own consciousness is almost as, if not more important than the right to free speech, but it's, we have one and we don't have the other. And so I, I really am encouraged by these people that are really willing to put themselves out there that in a lot of ways, I think people would advise them that it would jeopardize like their future careers, like for traditional industries, but at the same time, it's fuck it. If you want to join the psychedelic industry and you have a passion for it, you have some type of experience with it and you believe in it, then just go full bore and don't hold back from those experiences that you've had that can really help other people in a lot of ways. Because if you do hold those back, like in a lot of ways, that's really selfish because you're just trying to preserve your own ego or your own standing with a certain group of people that might not be 
excited or pleased about you going down that road. But I think there's so much to be gained from it and so much to be gained by being authentic in that process. Yeah. And that's, and, and I'll tell you what, like the authenticity that I try to bring anything that I do, this podcast, the, my podcast, the teachers, the, the class that I teach, even I remember in, in Weber Shandwick when after a few short weeks after we started this 16 day mindfulness experience, they gave me some feedback. They're like, we love how authentic you are. Yeah, you know, because I think, like you said earlier, it gives other people the the upper, or it puts them at ease that they can be authentic, that they can be mm -hmm. themselves, that they don't it's need an to invitation. Be all, it's yeah. an absolute. It's a disarming invitation to be like, hey, we're here together, and we're human beings, and we're flawed like crazy. But you know what makes us really good is being authentic, and what and and when I'm authentic, it's that's when I can connect with you. That's when I can love you more. That's when I can disarm and ask like real questions and have real conversations and connect in a meaningful way. And it's like, you know, and that's when the vulnerability comes through and that's when you can get deeper into your heart and it's, and, and it's all right there. And I think we, so many men, women, everybody, but men especially put up such an armor to look like the good soldier or the good son or the good employee or like the badass weightlifter at the gym where on the inside they're scared as fuck to really be seen. And I know everything we talked about today, whether it's mindfulness and meditation or the psychedelics or, or, or community experience as well, like it, it, that will help soften you and realize that it's okay to be who you are. And, and I think that's a big part of this mindfulness and psychedelic revolution and is we're tired of being told of who we should be and what we should think and feel mm -hmm. and do. And here we are with an opportunity to be like, you know what, like this world's fucked. <laughs> and we got to change it because, you know, you know if, if we don't and think about what you what do you want your legacy to be? And it's just and for me, it's like if I'm all about helping other people and that's the legacies that live on forever. What do they say? You're never forgotten if you're always remembered. And if you have a very strong legacy of, of helping people in whatever in any way, but really empowering people to be more of themselves and it's you're going to live on forever because you're in the minds and hearts of people, really the hearts of people, not just the minds. Absolutely. This has been such a fun and fascinating conversation, but it does bring me to my final question of the day. Yeah. And, and that is, what is the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? Wow, that's a really great question. It brings me to tears just thinking about it. It's a really Wouldn't be question. the first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, God, it's a really good question. My God, I wish I could take like a phone a friend or something like that. I... I tell you one of my last ayahuasca experience, I, I took my cousin with me and he is, he's older than me. He's always been hyper-masculine, but for him to you know, trust what I've told him about ayahuasca and his own studies and stuff like that, for him to come on that journey with me, I just thought was just so and do that for himself, but also put me i've been this black sheep outlier in the family my family because they're just like who the fuck is this new york guy meditating <laughs> and, and, and teaching yoga and i have no idea how my life kind of works and, and how i make it work but to have someone in my family wake up and and then and come on a journey with me just felt i just felt so it just felt so so good and i felt it was so going to do that and i just that trust that he brought uh to me and how he actually was in plugged into the community that we had in during this ayahuasca ceremony and through the experience it just i was very proud of him and but also the bond that we have even even stronger now 
we're always like good friends growing up and that sort of thing. But it all shifted uh, since our experience in Memorial Day weekend. That's that just a wonderful act of kindness, but also, yeah, that's one thing that comes to mind. Oh, I love that. It sounds like a powerful experience. Yeah, it was, it was especially doing with a family yeah. and seeing, and they would, he's never really done, you know, I think he's an acid before, but to go to the belly of the beast with ayahuasca, I was so proud of him, you know, for trusting the process and trusting me and, and showing up big in that room, which was amazing. Oh, beautiful. Thank, Thank you, you so much for joining me today. It's an absolute pleasure getting to speak with you. Same here. I thank you so much for your time and this platform and this opportunity. It's been beautiful to speak with you. Absolutely. So today's episode was brought to you by the HOCL Association. If you're an HOCL business owner or looking to join the industry, visit hocla.org to learn more and book your free consultation today. Thank you so much to all of our listeners for tuning in to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us so that others can find it as well. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at the LUE Podcast or visit our website at theluepodcast.com. We look forward to having you tune in next time for the next episode of Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm Pacifico Soldati, wishing you peace, love, and awesomeness. Yes.